לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. ברכה See, I, I'm giving to you this day a blessing and a curse. It goes into what the blessing is, the blessing if you observe the law, and the curse if you uh, do not. And then it talks about um, a very interesting uh, phenomenon, that when you get into the land, you are into the land, you're, you're basically going to develop one center of worship uh, you have to of course destroy all of the uh, the foreign worship th- that's in the land all of the idolatrous places that are in the land which only indicates that idolatry was a phenomenon in in very concrete physical terms uh, in antiquity uh, but that these people who are standing on the banks of the Jordan listening to this these rules, have to go into the land, conquer the land, destroy all the idolatrous places, and then at some point they will uh, worship in the place that God chooses. I have to add something here, because you know, from the perspective of the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan, they understand idolatrous places. But the reality is that the places that are going to be destroyed are places of worship of the one true God. That The centralization is going to eliminate also authentic Jewish Israelite religion, not just inauthentic religion. And we only realize that after the fact. Right, because if you read, for example, the book of Joshua, book of Judges, and really up you know, into the book of Samuel, uh, you see that the sanctuary is in different places. Um, you know, the, the sanctuary in, in the book of Samuel, Elkanah and Hannah, They, they make a pilgrimage to the to Shiloh that's where the um, the sanctuary is and and in fact there is an archaeological uh, dig in Shiloh today with uh, some remnants of that sanctuary space it was a, a kind of pre-temple um, the point though is that there is a need for centralization and I want to ask this question you know and discuss it with you I mean the 
pros and cons. What's, what's good about the centralization and what's bad about it? And, you know, the, the, the follow-up question, which I'll, I'll present now is, would we want that now? We want, you know, so what, what's the intent of Moshe here, Deuteronomy in parenthesis, by, to establish this? And is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? So who wants to take that one? Well, I'll, I'll start. Go ahead. Um, I'll, I'll start. I, I would say that, uh, obviously, as you pointed out, Elliot, the, uh, the historical books don't know that there is a prohibition on on uh, worshiping outside the, the central shrine. And, and as a matter of fact, you know, there are any number of stories, obviously, Gidon and Eliyahu. And so the, and so the, the rabbis postulate that there was a time, a, a sort of a, a short heter habamot. There was like some short period in which they were allowed uh, before the before the full centralization kicked in. And that's actually, it, it's in its own way, it's the rabbis actually landing on a proper historical data, which is that there was a period when it was, this was the thing that was done, and then then that changed. And, and you had to worship perhaps in Shiloh, or, or you know, ultimately it would become, it would become Jerusalem. What's the pluses? What's the minus? What are they trying to accomplish? Well, at one level, they're suspicious of the people's um, uh, faithfulness in in worshiping God in the proper way, because they think that the, the the shrines they're like full of you know they have Asherot and people planted the sacred trees and and there's certain kinds of, of of icons that are probably brought into you know into the worship that that the writers of Deuteronomy want to get rid of. They don't want they don't trust the local shrines. And so they want to make sure that everybody hews to the worship of, you know, the the aniconic, the no the no idols, no images worship of, of of the true God. And that's not a bad thing, obviously. Um, but it's it starts from a position that we have to con- we got a problem here. We got a problem is that we don't really trust the people's behavior and the people's theology, and we can only um, really you know be sure that we're going to get the right answers and the right theology and the right behavior if we control of it. We, if we take control and make people come to Jerusalem. Um, that kind of like suspicion is a little bit unappealing to me. Um, and I think that the that the uh, more Protestant, so to speak, image of every church can do things in its own way. Uh, every local community is going to have its own traditions. Uh, that That is kind of appealing to me. And I think that one of the strengths of Judaism is that we don't have a pope and we don't have a magisterium and we don't have a central, we, we have a, a central loyalty to the book and we have a central Are you throwing to, your, your hand into the ring? <laughs> uh, <no. laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm making an exploratory committee, let's just say. Yeah, <laughs> really. I'll send a but, donation. Okay. <laughs> it's a, it's a not tax deductible, by the way. But uh, but the the uh, I think one of the reasons that Judaism has thrived is it's tolerated a certain amount of idiosyncrasy and locality, um, even while having. I, I think it's 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 not like everything goes and that and it can be totally different. We have a loyalty to the book and a loyalty to the to the mitzvot and a loyalty to the basic ideas. But people in Morocco are going to do it a little bit differently than people in Poland and and you know to to speak of it in in modern ideological terms. Orthodox people are going to do it a little differently than conservative or reform people. And and I think that that's like basically a good thing. So no, I don't really. I do believe in sacred places. I feel the specialness of being in Jerusalem. I feel the specialness of being in the Kotel. But 
as religious life hits the road, as the rubber hits the road, I, I like diversity, and I think that that's been a good thing. Is there a political dimension to having the the place of central, the central place by Mahoma Sharif Khar? I mean, I'm just absolutely, thinking, absolutely. So, so you know, when you think about American history or history of any country, you know, the the choice of the capital, uh, you know, is um, a very deliberate choice. It is a choice, it's a political choice. Uh, you know, I, I I did see Hamilton. I, I don't remember the song. You know about how the Washington was chosen as the capital. I mean, Washington was not originally the capital of the United States. It had to be chosen, um, and and it had to be chosen for political reasons. Uh, Ottawa was not the original. You know, it had to be chosen. Uh, how was right, Ottawa? But it's worth thinking about in in the context of our discussion, why Washington was chosen. And it was chosen because of the, in the 13 colonies, it was in the middle. Yeah. Right. New York and Philadelphia were much further north. Washington is in the middle, and both Maryland and Virginia had to cede land to the nation in order to create a national capital. And because uh, one of them did not give the, the land they were supposed to give, so Washington, D.C., which was supposed to be a square originally, is now um, malformed, shall we say, and not just politically. Um, but the larger point here, and I think, you know, it's interesting in light of Jeremy's really persuasive presentation, is that the the tension here is between the state, or in biblical language, we would say the tribe and the nation. That there, we want to maintain the tribal identity, and we also want to maintain a national identity. And it's very hard to navigate both. You know, in our own country, for us uh, United States citizens, you know, we had a war about this, whether the tribe or the, the nation was the more determinative of our identity. And I think what we have in ancient Israel is this, this tension. In order to have a nation, you need a certain amount of centralization. You can't have... Uh, a tribal confederation function as a nation with all that that implies. And that requires some blurring of the distinctions between between the tribes. Well, that was David's, King David's main, main accomplishment was the establishment of Jerusalem as a capital. And, and it's hard not to kind of hear the echoes of David and Solomon and, you know, the era of the monarchy in, in these um, verses here. Where, where you know the the tribal league uh, gets centralized in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, you know, as close to a geographical center of the land of Israel as you could probably get, um, and and of course because it has distinct features uh, in terms of water uh, and and uh, it's the crossroads of the north south route and the east west route. Um, that that makes it uh, very very important uh, strategically, geographically, um, politically, and and others. And so it took it took the remarkable political and charismatic genius of David to to recognize that. And it's not until uh, you know the the reign of Solomon that the Makom Asher Yivchar, the place that God chooses, is actually a place. Uh, and that right, that, but there's yeah. part of the process that we often forget about. And that is that Solomon redrew the tribal borders. So he maintained the 12 districts, 
but he drew them so they were not quite aligned with the tribes in order to break down tribal loyalty. Okay, so so then getting to that then, you know, Solomon is trying to create the central place of worship that will last for every for all time, and that will become, and we'll see it later on in the Parsha, that's the place where people will make the pilgrimage festivals. You can't celebrate Passover, you know, in your home anymore. You have to come to Jerusalem. You can't do Sukkot and Shavuot. You have to come to Jerusalem, and you can't do any other sacrifices. You can't do it in your backyard barbecue. You can't do it at Kevin well, on the Berkshires. <laughs> this is the new, this is the one of the Hidushim that our Parsha, one of the innovations that our Parsha introduces which is known in, in Hebrew parlance as Shechitat Chulin, the, the uh, original, it would seem, the original behavior is that whenever anybody wants to eat meat, there has to be a sacrificial component. And even, by the way, you know, we're talking about the people who don't know about, the people who don't know about uh, uh, the requirement of centralization of worship, one of them is the book of Leviticus, which never mentions the concept. And Leviticus, in fact, seems to assume that there'll be lots of, of, of sacrifices wherever you are, there'll be kohanim in those places, and they'll do they'll do what you're supposed to do. But when you have a sacrifice, you the certain portions of the animal that get burnt and go to God, or certain portions of the animal that get burnt and go to the priest, and there's certain portions of most sacrifices that are eaten by the local people. You, you know, when you had a barbecue, it was never in the original setup. It was never a purely religious, purely secular event. It was always a religious component. And now in our parsha, when it's when it uh, the the Torah says, "Ki yarchi Adonai Elohecha et gibulcha kasher diberlach," you're gonna be you're gonna be very fortunate. Your borders are gonna get nice and big, and you're gonna be far from the central shrine. Ve'amata ochla basar ki ta'avan avshecha lechol basar, and you say, "I would really like to have, you know, some fleshics." Ki yarchak mimcha hamakom asher yichar Adonai Elohecha. But it's going to be far for you to go to Jerusalem. You're not going to be able to go every time you want to have a hamburger. Here's what you can do. You can have this new thing called Shechitat Chulin. You can, you can sacrifice your animals in a purely secular way locally. And that, that means that you can now eat fleshics without the religious component um, and it'll be a it'll be a local a local thing, which was is the only sort of I mean people could become vegetarians of course, but it's the only logical concession to the centralization of worship that the local eating of meat can now itself be secularized, leaving all of the sanctity, restricting all of the sanctity, restricting all the religious content of meat eating to the shrine in in Shiloh or Jerusalem or wherever it might be. And it comes with a couple of provisions, namely, you can't eat the blood, and you, and you, you, you have to. It's the, as you say, the, the, the sacralized. That is to say, but, but there's still, there's still a vestige of the sacred there, which is the blood. The blood always goes to God. You can't put the blood on the altar, which would, which would then enable you to eat the sacrifice if it were an edible sacrifice. But what, what, what it's saying here is you, you let it go into the ground. Let the ground take the blood because the blood belongs to God. Uh, and that's the symbolic way of showing that. I, I think it's fascinating. It's, it does reflect, I guess, a stage in, in the economic development of, of the people in an agricultural society that they want to eat meat. Affluent societies eat more meat. And, and it's quite likely that um, you know the early uh, Israelites 
you know, they, they, they wanted to eat meat. They had a local shrine where they ate meat. Um, but eating meat was probably not as common uh, a phenomenon as it is for us today. I don't know what, uh, you know, well, okay. the statistics I, are, but, you know, people eat two, three times a week. I don't know. what. Right. But one of the reasons why we eat more meat, I think, has to do with refrigeration. Yeah. And the fact that we can store meat in as meat without heavily salting it, as the ancients had to do, in order to preserve it for a longer period of time. But the point that is mentioned here, I think, that needs to be addressed, is that when we introduce this secular form of slaughter, we are taking away a religious dimension to eating. And that comes at a great cost, because we want to say, I think, you know, as moderns, whatever period we live in, that this is a good thing that people can now eat meat everywhere, even though the temple was not there, the local temple is no longer there. But there is a religious cost to that. And that also plays itself out. And you know, when I was speaking earlier about this tension between the tribe and the, the nation, this is part of the same thing. Because once you introduce an element of secularity, you're taking away some of the, the dimension of the holy in the shrine itself because you no longer have to go there as often. And it is interesting, by the way, that um, it, it uh, as Judaism develops, um, we find the all the ways in which local, you know, householders re-sanctify the eating, which I think you quite correctly say, you know, through through Shechitat Chulin, uh, it, it's, it's robbed of a certain amount of sanctity. So what have we done? Well, we have dis we have you know imposed certain animals and not other animals. We have a system of brachot. We have all the everything you know that makes this the religion of pots and pans. Um, you know, are all about re refilling that uh, that for you know that that once sacred act of eating and making sure that it it does have a kind of religious sanctity. I mean, is, is anything and not just because we're all you know. Jews love food. Everybody loves food, but Jews Jews really love their food traditions. That's culture, but it's it's also uh, imbued with like spirituality. Uh, as as our religion, I mean, that's what we're all about, right? We're we're making we're making spiritual content to the concrete details of life. Just back on on the question of of um, sacred space centralization of worship and and. Uh, you know, so we, we are a highly decentralized uh, religion now, or a highly decentralized people in, in, the, in the religious sphere. Although we, we have Israel and we have Jerusalem, Jerusalem does not function in that way in terms of, you know, we all have one place. We don't have a temple. So we're not all coming to the temple. I'm not sure, you know, I mean, we, we, do, we do have a, a prayer that, that would like to rebuild the temple, I'm not sure we, we want to accept the consequences precisely because, um, you know, who, who would be in charge? Of course, it would be the Messianic era, and therefore uh, these questions would be... So would God be would be in charge. I guess. Yeah, we, exactly. We can they accept that. Aside. And, and so, but, but um, I think we're all of this, the, the, the mind that this is a good thing that, that, you know, we, wherever we have dispersed to through the four corners of the earth, have developed local customs... And and yet and yet, you know, and this is you know, the great joy of Jewish travel. You can travel anywhere in the world and feel almost at home in a synagogue. You know, plus or minus, 
you know, certain things, depending on what kind of synagogue you're going to, Sephardic, Ashkenazic, Hasidic, or not, or, you know, Reform, Conservative, Orthodox synagogue, you, you will you will recognize something, and, and at least you will have the social experience of being together with Jews, which I think for modern Jews is probably the primary motivation in in going to synagogue when you when you are traveling you want to be around other jews and um uh the fact that we don't have a centralized system i think has been uh, has served us well I think. so but we I, I, do I, have a centralized system i i want to suggest and that is we've replaced a centralized place with a centralized idea the fact that jerusalem and israel remain the center of focus and locus as well i think is what kept the jews alive indeed and so we don't have the temple that's true but we certainly have prayers about the temple we have the idea that jerusalem is our holy city and israel is our promised land and no matter where we were elsewhere that's where we faced when we wanted to express a connection to god I think I feel, I feel like what you just said, Barry, is is um, is is it. I feel like what you said is certainly correct, and it is the minimum of the centralization that we need, and not more than that. Which is which I think is is exactly right. The fact that every Jew, wherever they daven, is facing Jerusalem. The fact that we have an investment in the in the history of this place, and the fact that in the twentieth century the you know most titanic achievement for, for all the the other challenges that have brought in its way the the most titanic achievement in the entire history of Am Yisrael is in in gathering the exiles in the wake of world war ii in the wake of destruction and building a new new and modern country oh my goodness you know for all the challenges that has produced it has been a wonderful thing uh and and i all that is is obviously important and important both analytically and important you know in my heart but it's the minimum of centralization because if you are like a monotheist, and I and and I am, <laughs> uh, um, you know, if you believe that God is everywhere, then the concept of sacred place is a little bit hard to swallow, and the concept of mitzvot hatsuluyot ba'aretz. The this this I think is a is a real spiritual challenge. Also, the 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 idea that that the, there are commandments almost exclusively agricultural commandments that apply only in the land of Israel and not elsewhere. Um, I think it's a little bit of a challenge. Like, why why should there be mitzvot that that uh, apply only in only one kind of place? Well, it, it is because we we do have this mythic story of the conquest and and the, and the settling of of Eretz Yisrael, um, and living in it is is an inherently good thing, but. I, I think that the, the the decentralization brings a lot of pluses in its wake, and over you know the many centuries of Jewish history, you could be a Jew living in France or living in Morocco or living in Egypt or, or living in Iraq or living in Poland, and and your life suffused with mitzvot, and I think that that's the real deal. And though we face Jerusalem in prayer, we do the mitzvot in France or we do the mitzvot in Poland, and I think that's big. I think I think perhaps what I'm saying is that you know we we are not getting necessarily the religious direction from and the spiritual direction from Jerusalem. We're getting the civilizational direction from Jerusalem. I mean, as as 
I mean, it's quite clear that the, the population center, the center of Jewish population has already transformed in, you know, into Israel. Israel is now the largest center of Jewish population in the world. The, the capital, Jerusalem, will emanate and provide not only political direction, but cultural direction for us. All the, all the trends that will happen in the Jewish world will, will um, you know, emanate from Jerusalem. So without a temple, and as decentralized as we are, we are, I think, still going to, you know, we're going to now have a different set of influencing factors from, from Jerusalem as, as, you know, the, the decades uh, proceed, let them proceed uh, in, in, in safety and peace. Let's turn to, to um, uh, one of the psukim, uh, one of the, the laws in uh, this uh, parsha, a law dealing with poverty. Ki yiyah v'cha evyon. If there should be a poor person from among your brethren, in any of your gates, in your land, the land that God is giving to you, this is chapter 15, verse 7. Last week I wrote a sheet on the word levav and how lev is you know one of the primary themes in in dvarim bechol levavcha ki yomar bilvavcha etc. With all your heart, you speak in your heart, um, and here it's te'amet levavcha, te'avet Let not your heart be uh, hard, hard, yes, firm, stony, stony. Amets, amet, chazak ve'amatz. The word amatz is, you know, be strong and of good courage. And here it's kind of inverted. You know, let your heart not turn away from a person. Let your not be be so strong that you will not, uh, you know, take care of, of of your person. I don't know if you have uh, your own set of comments here on this, Jeremy. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I mean, well, well, you know, this is. I mean, I, th- I this is a beautiful. Tremendously beautiful passage. Don't harden your heart. Don't shut your hand. Open your heart. Open your hand. And that's like in my own personal spiritual life. That's it's like a little a little mantra that you know I, I try to op- open your heart. Petachli bibitzoratecha and open your hands. Patoch tiftach et yadcha leachichayvion. Open your hand. Open your hands to to your needy needy person, needy needy brother or sister. So I, I feel that that. One of the things that I like about the heart vocabulary of Deuteronomy is that it, it really does, it, it makes it clear to me at least that the all the means vote are not only about here's the behaviors you're supposed to do, but here's the person you're supposed to be in those behaviors. Those behaviors train you to be not hard-hearted, but soft-hearted and not closed hand, but open hand. And so that's that's how I feel about Stakai. You know, I love New York City. Uh, New York City, our, our many listeners, you know, know or don't know, or you remember from your visits or what? New York City has got a lot of poor people, and and I would say that COVID has left New York, you know, frankly, uh, a little uh, dirtier, a little grungier, and there's more people on the street uh, asking for money. Uh, I personally try not to give, you know, money when I'm pretty sure that somebody's going to use it for drugs, um, but. You know, just yesterday, as a matter of fact, I, I did something which I, I'm, I'm not accustomed to entering a fast food restaurant and ordering trade stuff. But yesterday, I, it was a guy on the street. He says, will you take me in and buy me some chicken? So I went in and I bought him some chicken. 
and I was at uh, Popeye's and I've never been in a Popeye's chicken place before. Um, and I just, I just feel like, you know, thinking about this parasha and these mitzvot, can, can these behaviors, can you train yourself to be open-hearted and open-handed? And if you can, then I, I think that the Torah will have done its job. So do, do you have to, when you live in New York, do you have to kind of calibrate your, I, I don't know, errand, your grocery errand? Uh, you have to carry a few extra bucks in your pocket. You know, whenever you're, you're taking the subway, you're going you're gonna to see someone on the stairs of the subway. You're going to see someone outside the grocery. You're going to see, I mean, that's just the way it is. You described life pretty accurately there. How, how the, do you, that's the way it is. How do you calibrate your life? Do you have to do that? I mean, is it is an extra tax? To live in New York City for you? Well, it's it's good. It's it's, it's not definitely, uh, you know. There's, um, it so happens that, uh, you know, there's a supportive housing, uh, a couple of supportive housing buildings right near mine, and so truthfully, I got to tell you, I know most of the people on the street. Uh, they've been there for a long time, and. Whether this is nice or not nice, I don't know. I have the people I give to and the people I don't give to. Of course. It's, I, I feel, I'm not sure that I feel great about it because sometimes what I'm doing is saying I'm giving to the people who uh, make me feel less scared or who, who seem to be, you know, that way I can sort of tell who's, you know, in drugs and alcohol because <laughs> um, I because I know them and, and I know their names. And, and so I have people that I give to on a regular basis and then people that I kind of like avoid because, and I'm not sure that that's right because the people that I avoid, they, they also have needs, but they seem more erratic. They are scarier. And I think that, and I, so when I, when I, there's a particular guy who's really quite scary. Um, he says, can I, you know, buy me some food, buy me some food. I so I said, let's go in and get pizza. He says, no, no, I can't have that. I'm like, I know you're just buying, I know you just want drugs. Um, and, and so I'm not sure that I'm doing exactly the right thing, but I have the people that I give to and the people that I avoid. And when I turn down the people that I avoid, I say to myself a mental note, to put a dollar in the in the coupa, so it's not it's not saving the dollar that I was doing. It was avoiding this particular. I, it's a complicated thing. I mean, it, you know, our, our the world was configured differently in antiquity, but maybe not. I mean, you know, it says it wasn't. I, I I have to say, you know, you went to verse seven, but we also have to consider verse four, which is the direct opposite of verse seven. So in verse four, it says there will be no poverty. There will be no poor person. And verse 7 is conditional. If, nevertheless, there happens to be a poor person. And what I wanted to say, especially responding to your uh, comments, Jeremy, is that when we turn to the poor person, we're supposed to see God. We're not supposed to see some grungy, miscane, some wretched person. We're supposed to see the image of God. That's what is supposed to motivate our behavior. And I think, you know, in your defense, we all have to make choices. So you make a choice, you give to one, you don't give to the other, because you can't give to everyone. You don't have a limitless wallet. But as long as we're turning to the person with that we give to with the generosity of spirit, I think that's what God wants us to do. Okay, so changing a different topic, it's a, it's a very fascinating topic, but but uh, in the moments we have remaining, so this Parsha has a chapter on the diet, it has a chapter on the holidays. Just had a chapter, you know, part of a chapter on tzedakah. Um, would you say that that there's some basic Judaism going on in here? That this is the kernel of a Jewish way of life. That I wouldn't say 
you know, take a person and read this Parsha and you'll get everything. Of course not. But um, uh, the, the cycle of the holidays, the calendar, the diet, tzedakah, a little bit of extra stuff. Barry? So in senior homiletics, I had Rabbi Saul Teplitsky, of blessed memory, and he said to us that a sermon is supposed to be marching orders for the congregation. When you're done, they should want to get up and do something. And when we read Parsha A, we should want to get up and live a Jewish life. And it gives us the tool. It doesn't give us everything, but it gives us the tools to get started. And if we start here, we could get everywhere else. How would you, uh, I mean, so, uh, you know, we, we've had the, 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 the Shema, for example, in an earlier Parsha, worship in an earlier Parsha. Um, you know, uh, we, we like the idea that you can get the basics in, in one package. Um, and yet what I, what I want to ask is to, you know, I, I'm, I'm reading this and I'm trying to imagine, as it were, listening to Moses give these commandments. And so this is simple. kind of a primitive form of monotheism. I don't think it's fair to say that in the Bible, God is everywhere. That's a later development. But here we see that God infuses every sphere of life. How we regulate time, which is the calendar, how we regulate our, our diet, which is what allows us to sustain ourselves, how we build a community which is how we interact with the poor people. So everywhere we turn, we see God or can see God as a partner with us. And so God is in that sense everywhere. And and that's- I like, I like this I like this a lot. I, I think that, that there's a very, it is a great way that this partial, because of the food, because of the ethics of the stucca, because of the marking of time of holidays, because of the maser, we talk, we talk about the, the the worshipful we we didn't see, speak in our conversation but the parsha contains the the uh, the national party you know we talk about centralization of worship and and what it means about keeping keeping the religion uh, you know quote unquote pure or sullying it with idolatrous elements or whatever but one of the things about the 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 pilgrim the centralization is it permits national pilgrimage and you bring your maaser you bring a tenth of your produce and you celebrate and sharing national sharing national Mardi Gras is a very necessary thing for for consciousness. So I, I really like it. The one thing that is maybe doesn't sit quite so well in that same thing is this parasha, as Deuteronomy will, you know, just you got to destroy all the idols, destroy all the idols, destroy all the idols. And if anybody um, tells you, let's go worship idols, even if it is your child, even if it is your spouse, even if it's your best friend, you have to just kill them. Uh, and if, if a city, if a city allows itself to to turn towards idol worship, you got to destroy it, make it a tell olam, just a, a, an eternal heap. Oh, and uh, and there's a kind of, I mean, uh, this is the Torah, this is Deuteronomy. It has this these elements too, and things that that I find beautiful, and things that I find a little less beautiful. There's a kind of, uh, you know, uh, there's a Taliban equality to some of these things. It's serious. It means take it seriously. Look, we all we all have our difficult elements, but this has been a. I mean, it's a remarkable parsha, as as they all are, but remarkable for for the reasons that we we uh, elucidated here. Because you have the the basic foundation stones of of Jewish life in this parsha. I think that's a useful 
a useful frame within which we can we can look at this parsha. And of course, it's been a useful conversation as always. As it always. Hey, can I say one last thing? Go ahead. One last thing. You pointed out at the very beginning of the parsha that says, "I place before you blessing and curse," and th this is open parentheses to 75% of the book of Deuteronomy. Here's the blessing and the curse. Here's the law, and it's going to come to a conclusion in in uh, Kitavo and and Nitzavim in chapters 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, where the close parentheses is going to come along and say, I place before you blessing and curse, death and life, and therefore, choose life. Choose life. Choose life. Choose we are so glad you chose to spend this time with us, which is a kind of choosing life. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for uh, listening. And on behalf of my colleagues, we want to say good Shabbos to everybody. Shabbat Shalom. And we'll see you next week on the next edition of Parsha Talk.